What is going on, One Week Season fam? Tight-knit One Week Season fam, OWS Chat Pod fam. Welcome to the week 13 edition of the OWS Chat Pod. For those of you who are new to the Chat Pod, which is probably two or three of you, I am your host, JM to win. I am your guest, JM to win. And in this one, I really am kind of your guest because I am answering your questions. So a quick note here before we dive into this week's chat pod. This will probably be the last traditional chat pod of the season. We're in week 13. It's a little early to wrap the chat pod, but the way that Christmas falls this year is a bit strange. So uh, this is week 13. Week 14, we're going to be running back What we did in week one, if you remember, was the Processing the Edge chat pod. I know a lot of you were a big fan of that, where Josh Morano, who reads our, uh, is one of the two who reads the NFL Edge audio, uh, Morano hops on and asks me game-by-game questions about the NFL Edge. And so again, Morano is one of the best season-long DFS players, one of the best season-long fantasy players I know, but has never really been able to translate that success over to DFS. And so It's a cool opportunity for us to allow him to ask the sorts of questions that people tend to be asking while they read the NFL Edge. People who are not in this day in and day out uh, and who haven't maybe been playing DFS at a high and consistent level for seven years and playing lots of different sports and whatnot and gives a really cool like deep dive training opportunity for me to answer the questions that he's coming up with as he goes to the NFL Edge in terms of how how he should be processing that information toward his roster construction. So we actually were on Zoom today. We were going to record for this week. He had all of his notes. And then we realized that with how busy both of us are and with how ugly this slate is, both of us are considering just not playing this slate. And so he wanted to wait until week 14 when we'll have a slate that we're both going to be playing. So week 14, we'll be doing that. Week 13, we have this. Week 15, typically Abby and I do our family Christmas on uh, like the quote 23rd is Sunday evening and then we'll do uh, our our Christmas Eve on a Monday and our Christmas Day on a Tuesday and then I kind of start work for the week that Tuesday night. Uh, This year, because Christmas falls on like, I don't know, Thursday or Friday, uh, we're actually doing our family Christmas on a Saturday and Sunday. That will be week 15. So week 15, I don't plan on playing because uh, I will be spending time with family on on that Saturday and Sunday. So uh, no chat pod week 15. And then week 16 is actual Christmas. We don't typically have a chat pod. uh, So we may or may not have one week 17, but that's kind of a strange week to drop one in there. So this is probably the last traditional chat pod of the season. Next week, we'll have the Processing the Edge chat pod, and then probably shut the chat pod down until next season. Um, Although again, maybe we'll have one week 17, and obviously we'll still have plenty of other stuff for you guys. Um, And who knows what'll show up um, as we kind of launch NBA. Obviously, I I won't be heavily involved in NBA stuff, but um, certainly opportunity for for more random things to pop up in this space uh, throughout that part of the season and as we start getting ready for the 2021 NFL season. Um, But with that background out of the way, let's hang out. So I, I, it just came to my mind that last year I would always mention that I was sitting here with my Stumptown coffee and diving into the chat pod. Today, I have some 
truly horrendous cold brew that I got um, <laughs> delivered uh, via Postmates or DoorDash a couple days ago and been saving in the fridge. Uh, it tastes like the way that pool water smells at a hotel. So that's where I'm at today, drinking my disgusting cold brew, getting ready to hang out with you guys and then do a bunch of work and probably not actually play DFS this weekend. Although who knows, I'll, I'll finish work around midnight tonight and maybe I'll um, feel energized to build a roster. It's a, again, it's a straight strategy week this week. So uh, it's not so much diving in and Figuring out where the certainty is so much as diving in and figuring out what uncertainty you want to embrace. We'll see if I'm in the mood to do that this week. But in the meantime, let's dive in. We have, I think, five questions this week. Now, the first question this week comes from Robert Dawkins, and he asked, what should I look for to use the GPP tool effectively? Uh, Does Cubs fan use only hand-built lineups instead of optimizers? If so, why is that a preference for him? So I'll answer that second question first. And most of you who hang out on the chat pod have probably heard me talk about this. But for Cubs fan, hand-building lineups allows additional room for creativity and for correlative thinking. And so uh, the way he talks about it is he builds throughout the week. So if he's going to build 150 lineups he's not sitting down and pinning down all of his ideas and then building. There's a lot more going game by game. So like when I get questions from Cubs fan late in the week about guys like Ola BC Johnson last week and Chad Beebe on the Vikings, he's going through that game and saying, okay, where are the touches going? And then trying to think about how he can build in pieces from that game that other people won't have. And so he's going throughout the week, sort of game by game and spot by spot, and just trying to capture whatever creative mood he's in at the moment. So it might be, he might be waking up at two or three in the morning to check overseas markets, and then he'll knock out, you know, a few lineups while he's sitting there. And, um, you know, might be Tuesday night, it might be Wednesday morning, it might be Thursday afternoon, it might be Sunday, a couple hours before kickoff. And so he'll have his builds from the week. And that allows him to not... I remember uh, back when back when FanDuel used to lock lineups on Thursday nights. Uh, I had a week when I picked up, I think it was like a 10 grand win on the Thursday to Monday FanDuel slate and had a bad weekend on DraftKings because by the time I got to Saturday, so I was still a single entry player at the time, by the time I got to Saturday, I'd basically talked myself off several of the players that I had been using on that Thursday night slate that was locked in place that I couldn't touch. Furthermore, the players that I played on Thursday night were not chalky at the point when I played them, but by Saturday, they'd picked up enough steam in the industry that they had become chalky and were not popular on FanDuel, were things that already locked, but were popular on DraftKings that weekend. They ended up doing well. I didn't end up using those guys on DraftKings and ended up losing money on DraftKings, but making money on FanDuel. I use that example because it's so often that as we move deeper into the week, we change the way that we're seeing the slate. We change the players that we're gravitating toward. And you'll hear players say, oh man, I was on that guy earlier in the week and then got off of him. 
So if you build like Cubs fan, you don't actually run into that because he's able to say to me, you know, sometimes they'll say, oh, wow, it was all like my early week builds were the ones that did the best. That's not a process flaw for him. That's just the way he builds. And so what he's able to do is kind of cover his thoughts throughout the week and not run into that type of regret. And if you're like, people think that that's a bankroll thing, that you need a big bankroll in order to do that. But you could play, I think they still have the quarter arcade on on DraftKings, um, or you could do it in the $3 play action um, and build up to 20 lineups. and Or you could get up into the slant, the $9 slant, because I know a lot of you play, you know, a, a couple hundred bucks a weekend, right? Well, the $9 slant, you can put in a good 25 to 30 rosters and still come in under your typical bankroll amount and and basically give yourself an opportunity to try this idea of building throughout the week and and hitting rosters that come in and you know that come together depending on how your mind is flowing at the time now a big part of that is what makes cubs fans so strong at this is he's highly willing to build losing rosters. That's important because he's playing large field tournaments the way that he's taking down first place on a uh, at a much higher rate than just about anyone else out there is that he's also building a lot of rosters that end up not having a shot. But by taking those risks, he's able to put himself in position with rosters that other people won't have. And when those rosters hit, he's soaring past the field. As far as correlative, uh, just understanding leverage and correlation is extremely important and building those into your rosters is extremely important. And guys like Zandemir and Blender and Sonic who get really good at using the optimizers, they're able to build in a lot of the same rules that Cubs fan is able to build in manually. But even with that, Cubs fan has said to me that the biggest edge in DFS right now is not using an optimizer because there's just things that we can see that you that an optimizer is still not fully capable of <clears throat> of implementing. So if you're somebody like so like Blender's mindset, he's talked to me before about is basically like why would I spend a lot more time to make only marginal gains in my returns where I could say, yeah, maybe I can get 95% of the way there with an optimizer and spend 10% of the time that somebody like Cubs fan is spending, as opposed to spending those like that 10 times more amount of time just to make the returns marginally better. That's a mindset that's a very sharp mindset. It's a mindset that Xandamir carries. It's a mindset that Blender carries. But the mindset that Cubs fan carries is hey, I really enjoy this. I love building rosters. I love hand building a roster that beats everybody else. And I'd rather put in that extra time each week and improve those returns by a little bit more. And so uh, I think that a lot of the, even a lot of the optimizer players would acknowledge that the sharpest hand build players, which there aren't many of them, but the sharpest hand build players can still build a slightly more plus EV portfolio over time than the best optimizer player. But the average optimizer player 
is going to build more plus EV lineups than the average hand-build player because the average hand-build player doesn't understand a lot of the concepts that are supposed to go into putting together a plus EV roster. So if you're here on OWS, you have a good start on building better hand-built lineups than an optimizer is going to be able to spit out. And if you're putting in the time to listen to the chat pod, your chances are even higher that you have the tools to build better hand-built lineups then an optimizer is going to be able to spit out. So there's certainly value in building by hand if you have the time and if you have the passion to do it. But part of it is, you know, when you run lineups through an optimizer, they're going to give you some lineups that you wouldn't feel comfortable building or putting into play yourself. And you have to be able and willing to do that while hand building lineups. Now, this is obviously talking about multi-entering. If we're getting down to building, you know, three max or single entry or whatever, then just building by hand makes a lot of sense. You can lean on an optimizer, something Xandamir talks about. Lean on an optimizer so that you can actually see things from some different angles and uh, allow the optimizer to fill in what the optimal rosters are based on projections. And then you can kind of start massaging things from there. Uh, as far as the GPP ceiling tool... There are a couple things. One, median projections have a lot of value. So 50th percentile projections have a lot of value because as you'll notice, if you sort by 85th percentile or 80th percentile or 90th percentile, whatever, the order in which the players are listed is still pretty close to the order in which they would be listed based on just straight median projection. Or if you download the CSV from the GPP ceiling tool that actually you have your column already for 75th percentile, 80th percentile, 85th percentile, and so on, and 50th percentile. And you can sort by any of those columns. And again, the order in which players will be listed based just on median projections is going to be pretty similar to the order that they'll be listed based on ceiling projections. So what we're worried about in a tournament is ceiling. But even just by looking at median projections, we can get a good sense of where player expectations are on the slate. So one of the first things that you can use the GPP ceiling tool for is going through and just finding players with with low ownership and a high median projection, basically. You know, like if you're going through this list and you see, okay, 11, let's say we're at, at wide receiver, right? you see like 18% owned, 16% owned, and you're just going down the list in the order that they're listed. Uh, 18% owned, 16% owned, 11% owned, 9% owned, 4% owned, 11% owned, 12% owned, 8% owned. Well, that player who's 4% owned and is projected similarly to all these other guys has value. Now, What does something like the GPP ceiling tool take into account? It takes into account everything. It's going to be uh, running simulations. It's going to be leaning on historical data. It's going to be leaning on Vegas lines. And so as things change in the Vegas line based on weather or based on injuries or whatever, that actually gets directly accounted for in something like the GPP ceiling tool. As I've talked about before, it's the same team of guys behind Cardi's The Blitz and the GPP ceiling tool. And if you compare the projections, they're pretty darn close between 
what we have just as part of OWS and what you get through the Blitz um, for, I think it's like a couple hundred uh, a season. And, you know, as, as that's why we brought on EV Analytics is because Cubs fans said for years that the Blitz is the best projection system out there. And so you're going to get really a really strong sense of who the top projected plays on the slate are. Another thing that I like to account for is the fact that a lot of our sharpest competition, our toughest competition, the guys who are putting in 150 lineups, not just because they have the bankroll, but who actually have the bankroll because of how good they are and are then putting in 150 lineups, right? That portion of our competition is leaning heavily on projections. So that's another thing that you can do with the GPP ceiling tool is have a sense of, if you start studying Osimo's lineups, for example, and then start paying attention to the GPP ceiling tool every week, you'll actually start finding some of the angles that you know heading in that Osmo is going to be playing. It's kind of like back in the day when uh, everyone revered Condia as a, as a DFS player. Some of you might have come into DFS after that, but people used to enter the Thursday lock contest on FanDuel just to see who Condia was rostering to have a better sense of who they might want to roster on the Sunday slate. You can actually do that these days with, you know, a, a lot of these players who use projections and math and just try to leverage ownership. And you can actually start seeing, okay, here's where, here's where the field is going, right? Here are the really popular plays that everyone's talking about. Here's the chalk. And then here are some of the angles that my sharpest competition is going to be playing. If you're in contests with those guys, or if you're playing higher dollar single entry stuff, for example, that's actually another piece of leverage that you can grab because you not only know where the main flow of ownership is going to go, but you also know where the guys who you really have to beat, where they're likelier to sort of tilt their roster construction this week. So that's another thing that you can look for in the GPP ceiling tool. And then obviously just ceiling. Ceiling is so important for DFS. And so having an understanding of if we say 85th percentile, we're talking about a score that this guy is going to get 15% of the time. And to have that sense of like, what is this player's true ceiling? And as always, because, you know, I mentioned all that stuff about how good EV analytics is and how good their projection system is, because we still can get a little bit closer to the right answer than a projection system can. But it's like this. If you're playing music, if you're a musician, and you want to write the best song that's ever been written, well, your best path to doing that is to listen to a ton of music to know what's been done before and then sort of process all of that into what you want to do. If you instead listen to no music, you're trying to build from the absolute ground up. And there might be, you know, maybe you need to stand on the 10th story to, for this great song. And there's already nine stories that have been built for you. And you can just build on top of those nine stories instead of starting from the absolute ground 
digging the foundation, you know, like you don't have to do all of that. And maybe you can, but it opens more opportunities for mistakes along the way. So a projection system is going to give you like 85% of the answers that you need. So for me, because I'm so deep into the NFL edge and all the research, I kind of have the same answers that the projection system is going to have before looking at the projection system. And so for me, projection systems I've found are, are a little less valuable. But even like myself, with all the research that I do for the NFL edge, I've started leaning more and more on projection systems because I want to find those spots where there's a player who is projected higher than I would expect so that I can really weigh that in my thoughts and say, what might I be missing? And I want to find players who are projected lower than I would expect so that, again, I can look and see, okay, what might I be missing? And sometimes I find that the projection system is the component that's missing something. But a lot of times I find that there's something that I'm missing where I'm overvaluing something about a player or undervaluing a spot. And so you like to try to find those places where you can say, okay, here's what, I mean, it's like Zandemir said it like this. Those of us like myself and Hilo who know the NFL really well, when we're doing all this research, what we're basically doing is building projections for the slate in our head. And ultimately, those projections are going to be similar in most places to what a projection system is going to spin out. And there's only going to be a few places where we diverge. And sometimes the projection system is going to be right. Sometimes we're going to be right. But finding that those points of divergence kind of help you to build things differently and build with confidence in what you're seeing. But I like to be able to see those places where... I might be blind or where the projection system might be blind in order to make that final edge a little bit more tangible. And so use the ceiling tool to see guy like who has the highest upside. And if you're on a player and you just think he's such a great play and then you go look and his 85th percentile projection is like 22 points, we'll start asking if that play really is as sharp and as can't miss and as high upside as you're thinking, or if maybe you're overstating the case on some things. Those are the sorts of things you want to look for. If there, Or if there's a player whose 85th percentile score is like 42 points and you haven't given him a thought and he's going to be low owned, say a Derrick Henry last week, start thinking about what it takes to win a tournament and ask yourself, okay, do I think this guy, like 85th percentile score is this, like what percentage of the time is he going to go 4x? If a guy is going to go 4x 15% of the time and he's only projected at 3 or 4% ownership, that's leverage. That's plus EV over time. You're going to make money over time by playing plays like that. And so uh, that's kind of the other thing that I would use the GPP ceiling tool for is just going through finding the, the plays who stand out in the in the projection system so that you have a better sense of how you want to play things yourself. Shortest question of the week, um, probably the longest answer of the week, which tends to be kind of the way that the first first question of the uh, chat pod goes. Second question comes from old friend Greg Heller. Greg asked, 
Uh, I feel like ownership has been more relevant this year than the previous two years. It seems as though it's having a greater impact on lineup decisions. Would you agree and could you comment? I feel like there's more movement in your lineups. For example, you noted last week, week 12, 2020, that you would have played less Ridley had you known he was going to be 20 plus percent owned. I'm not really used to hearing you say that too often. So I'll use the Ridley example first and specify that my roster in week 12, my uh, main slate roster in week 12, was 0% about trying to predict what would happen on the slate and 100% about just building leverage and strategy. Basically the same way that if I end up playing this week, I'll be building. There wasn't, in on that particular slate, uh, Dalvin Cook was going to be 30 plus percent owned. He was super expensive. I, I wanted to build without him because I didn't feel that his score was going to justify the price tag. But as I kept going through the rest of the slate, I, I kept thinking, well, where else would I spend this salary? And we had these high-priced uh, wide receivers in Stefan Diggs, Keenan Allen, Tyreek Hill, who all projected to be popular. Diggs and Keenan Allen ended up being significantly less popular. Tyreek Hill became quite a bit more popular, which I think surprised everyone because throughout the week, we I think everyone just thought that all three would be kind of owned similarly. In fact, Tyreek Hill started the week projected at lower own and kept moving up. But I knew I didn't want Diggs... And I knew I didn't want Keenan Allen. That was certain for me. And I kept looking at Tyreek Hill, who, if, you, uh, if you're listening to this down the road, it was the week that Tyreek Hill scored like 60 points. Uh, I kept looking at Tyreek Hill, who was 7,800 and Dalvin was over 9K. And I kept thinking, okay, well, if I move off of Dalvin, I'm going over to Tyreek Hill. But... Dalvin was going to get up to about 30% owned. Tyreek Hill was projected at like 22 to 25%. He got up to 35% owned. And there's an element there of any wide receiver who's projected at 35% ownership. And especially like, let's let's go back and say, let's uncover why he was 35% owned. Well, it was because the week before in a primetime game that everyone was watching, the Rams, who are one of the run-heaviest teams in football this year, were taking on the Bucks, who teams just don't even try to run against, and they just decided, let's just throw. And they absolutely dominated the Bucks with Cooper Cup and Robert Woods. The Bucks couldn't stop either of them. Had that not happened one week earlier on national television, Tyreek Hill probably would have been about 15 to 18% owned. So I always want to look for those spots where a player's ownership is artificially inflated. DJ Moore, uh, was it last year or two years ago, you know, like hit a couple big games on weeks when people were on him. And so the rest of the season, everybody keeps chasing those big games. Hollywood Brown has one big game in his career, and yet he's always owned as one of these guys who can pop off for a monster game. He can pop off for a monster game, but he's done it in, you know, one out of 25 games. Like you want him when he's 
under 5% owned. You don't want him when he's 12% owned, 15% owned. So I, I always want to look for these places where ownership is sort of artificially inflated. And on a week where I have just a ton of confidence in the way I'm building and the way I'm seeing things, I'm going to be much likelier to not worry about ownership and to recognize that, hey, my roster is going to be very different from what the field is doing. And I'm just going to worry about what I'm doing first. And I'm going to be naturally contrarian as a result. But on weeks when I'm looking at the site and I'm like, well, I don't really like much of anything, which happens more and more as we get deeper into the season, then I'm going to think a lot more about ownership. I'm going to think a lot more about the strategy behind things. So last week, I kind of made the decision, which sunk my rosters from the start, but I made the decision, I'm comfortable losing with Dalvin Cook. I won't be comfortable if I lose without Dalvin Cook. With that, the rest of the roster just kind of became about leverage. I expected Herbert and Keenan Allen to be popular and expected Eckler to be underowned. If Eckler was succeeding, Herbert and Keenan Allen were less likely to be succeeding. And so Eckler just became a really nice play to scoop into there just from a straight strategy perspective. Uh, Calvin Ridley is extremely touchdown dependent for his upside, for his scoring. Calvin Ridley, you know, we look at this list of these popular guys. Stefan Diggs probably doesn't have 40 point upside, but Keenan Allen, just because he sees so many targets, has 40 point upside. We know Tyreek Hill has 40 point upside. Calvin Ridley really doesn't have 40 point upside. So I didn't want Calvin Ridley in a vacuum on that slate. But again, once I decided like, hey, there's just nothing that I see that I really feel super comfortable betting on. Once I saw that, it became about strategy. And so Brian Hill was going to be popular. Brian Hill was likeliest to get his value through touchdowns. If Brian Hill wasn't getting his touchdowns, who probably was? Calvin Ridley. If everyone was paying up for these other three high-priced wide receivers, Calvin Ridley's going lower owned. So he he's nice leverage off these other three high-priced wide receivers. He's nice leverage off of Brian Hill. And so it becomes a thing of, of strategy of just saying, look, I don't actually think that Calvin Ridley's going to have the best game out of this group. But if he does, it helps me enormously, assuming that he's lower owned. Helps me enormously because he's beating Diggs, he's beating Keenan, he's beating Tyreek, he's beating Brian Hill. He's hurting people with all these rosters and helping me. So if I had gone in knowing, okay, well, Calvin Ridley is going to be 20% owned, then I could swing over and say, yeah, I don't really like the play that much. Like I was playing him, expecting him to be the lower owned component from this group and just picking up this, this leverage that's available as a result. And so again, it's, I think part of it is just a continual maturation of, of DFS play. Like you always want to be looking for ways to improve. So for years, if you haven't heard me talk about ownership projections much, and then we go through like a a few week span where I'm leaning on them heavily. um, I certainly see how that can be like slightly disorienting or dizzying or whatever. Uh, But I think that the biggest thing is just that it comes down to, I guess, two things. One, swinging over to single entry. And then two, running into weeks in which, running into weeks in which the the chalky plays are are the best plays on the slate. 
but not by a significant margin. And so if I'm going through the research and it's like, okay, yeah, here are the best plays, but they're not as good as normal best plays. Then on a week like that, I'm likely to look at ownership a little bit earlier in the week and see what does everybody else think on this slate? And if everybody else is moving toward these plays, that's like, yeah, this is the best play on the slate, but most weeks it wouldn't be the best play on the slate. If everybody's moving toward that type of play, that's a nice week to just say, okay, instead of trying to build the best roster I'm based on you know what I think will happen in the games, let me build just the best strategy roster. And so for me, basically weeks when I can look at the slate and there and there's been a lot of those this season too, where we've looked at the slate and it's been like, okay, here are clear edges that the field is going to miss. That's also thinking about ownership, just not the exact ownership percentages. It's basically saying, here are guys who are going to go overlook for what they can do. The Deontay Johnson early in the season type plays where I'm not worried about if this guy is projected at 4% owned or 8% owned or 12% owned. It's like, hey, this guy's lower owned than he should be. He's a great play. He's a great way to build this roster to move us toward first place. But as we get into these weeks where the chalk is less good than chalk in other weeks, that's where I want to start really paying closer attention to ownership and saying, okay, if I don't like anything, let me allow the field to overstate the case on these chalky players. Let me allow the field to flock to these players who are only marginally better than these other players. And let me just play straight strategy. Um, To say that another way, if my greatest edge is having a better sense than the field of who the true best plays are, then I also need to recognize that that edge evaporates quite a bit on a week when there is no true best play. And so on those weeks, what I've done in the past is I have tried to still position myself and force my way into like figuring the slate out. And this year, I am getting better on those weekends of just saying, okay, I can't figure this slate out. Let me try to win this slate differently. Let me try to lean into what this slate actually offers and try to win differently. So it's not necessarily a change in process or a change in the way I see things so much as it is just a a further maturation and adjustment to where I can say on, on weeks when my standard edge isn't there. I don't want those weeks to just be a loss on the ledger. Instead, I want to develop a strategy that I can use on those weeks so that I am positioned for profit over time on those weeks as well. So hopefully that clears up some of that and then also kind of uh, hits on some other, I think, key and interesting things that we can uh, carry forward into our play. Uh, next question is a really interesting one from old friend Carryout Cole. <clears throat> he asked, on a week where there aren't going to be as many high-scoring rosters, would you want more correlation or less correlation compared to a week with more high scores to be had? I know this is a risk tolerance thing, and basically the answer to any DFS question is it depends on risk tolerance. So let's assume I only care about winning a GPP. My guess is you would want more correlation. I really like 
the angle on this question. <clears throat> the it's a, it's like a retrospective question, right? Like we don't actually know going into a slate if it's going to be a week with more high scores or fewer high scores. But you can generally have a sense. So week, I wish I remember now which week it was. Um, week seven, maybe the week when everybody scored over 200 points because there were just a lot of good plays available. If you're looking through research and you, and you run into a week where it's like, boy, there's a lot to like. There are a lot of players who could pop off for a huge game. Correlation is still important, but I think that you would want to tie yourself down to a correlation first mindset uh, to a less heavy degree on a week like that. On a week where you look at the slate and it's like, boy, it's tough to narrow this down because this guy could score 40 points and this guy could score 40 points and this guy's under underpriced and could score 30 points and and here's a guy who's probably underowned and could score 30 points, right? A week like that, where multiple players are going to score 40 and um, they're going to be decently popular. And so then, you know, already the, the floor for scoring across the DFS slate is high. And then you throw in some other random guys who get 30 to 40. On those weeks, <clears throat> I guess it's like this. In order to win a tournament, in order to win a tournament, you need the pieces that were the must-have pieces. Now, that sounds obvious, but there are going to be a few pieces every week that put up higher scores than everybody else. There are weeks like the Joe Mixon week five, I think that was, when he put up 45 points against the Jaguars at 5% owned. There was the Dalvin first game back from injury week where he put up 50 points at under 10% owned. On those weeks, you needed that player. No matter how much you correlated things, no matter what else you had on your rosters, you needed that player or you had no shot at winning first place in a tournament. Last week, week 12, you needed Tyreek Hill or you had no shot at winning first place in a tournament. You have to think about that every week. You have to go through the slate and and take mental notes or even physical notes of which players can actually put up that score. Not necessarily that you think they will, but you need to have an understanding of, of and that's what frustrated me about the Mixon week was he wasn't on my radar. That's the only score this year that I've just not seen coming, that I haven't been aware that that potential was there. And I never want that to happen. I'm okay not having that player on my list as long as I know that I consider that player. I weighed that player against everything else. If that player is is 35% owned and I think that their floor is substantially lower than the field is giving it credit for, and or their chances of posting that type of score are lower than the field is giving it credit for, I'm fine missing out on that player. But you need to know who those players are. And that's going to be the case on these weeks where you get a lot of big scores or not as many big scores. 
the key with correlation, the biggest key with correlation is that it can eliminate extra guesswork. If you get that one correlated spot right, if you get Ryan Tannehill plus A.J. Brown plus Derrick Henry on the week when they all hit together, if you get that right and, and you just bet on Titans smash and you get Titans smash and you collect all these points, you, got, you needed to get one thing right to get three spots right on your roster. Look at Thanksgiving, right? The Texans scored 41 points. Washington scored 41 points. If, that, if those two games had been on the main slate, so what I talked about last week was it was very instructive to me that, I think I talked about it in the Angles pod, it was very instructive to me that I put up 205 points with only two games available on the slate. And there are people who say they've never put up 200 points. And a lot of that is because they're trying to pick players from six, seven, eight different games on the main slate. So Antonio Gibson scored three touchdowns. If he'd been on the main slate, he would have been probably five or 6% owned. Will Fuller scored three touchdowns. Uh, rest in peace, Will Fuller. Will Fuller scored three touchdowns and probably would have been about 12 to 15% owned. And if those guys had been on the main slate, you would have needed both of those scores in order to have a shot at first place in a tournament. The Antonio Gibson score, you probably would have just needed to get fortunate to end up playing him. He wasn't going to stand out as the best play, but the reason why he stood out as the the best play to me on that Thanksgiving slate, the play that would make the most money, was that everyone was going to be on Zeke. And if Zeke failed, it directly helped Antonio Gibson. So maybe on the main slate, you see, okay, Zeke's going to be 20% owned. I don't think he's a great play. So let me flip that around and take Antonio Gibson at at 5% ownership. There's one of your have-to-have-it scores. But the other have-to-have-it score, the Will Fuller one, you're likely getting not from betting on Will Fuller, but from saying, man, I really like this Texans passing attack this week. So let me take same thing that you probably did on the Thanksgiving slate. Let me take Deshaun Watson. Let me take Will Fuller. Let me take Brandon Cooks. When that passing attack pops off, sure, Brandon Cooks disappointed individually, but he still put up 13 points. It's hard to get 13 points from a wide receiver spot just randomly guessing on another guy. Like things go wrong. Pile him in with Will Fuller. Don't worry about the fact that he got the 13 points and just take the points that this passing attack is getting. So that's what the the whole correlation thing is, is, all right, if you can get this offense right, they can put up the score as a group that was the have-to-have-it score. And you get three players from this offense. One of them is probably going to come in with like a modest score, but it's just hard to get nine spots on a roster right. So the people who are trying to guess, like, all right, I'm going to take Deshaun Watson, and Brandon Cooks, and I'm going to leave Will Fuller off, right? I'm going to play things that way. Well, they miss out on the huge score. So yeah, the people who got Deshaun Watson and Will Fuller right and left Brandon Cooks off, let's put this game on the main slate and say that that happened. Well, those people, they still need to get those 13 points that they didn't get from Brandon Cooks from a different guy 
And even if they get those, they're in this mindset of like trying to get individual things correct. Now, the way that I like to play that, I've talked about this obviously a lot going back to last year, but if I'm multi-entering, I want to isolate that offense and say, okay, I want to bet on this Texans passing attack. And so I'm going to take like nine rosters, nine out of 19 rosters and bet on this Texans passing attack. And I'm going to have three with Fuller, Cooks and Deshaun Watson and three with Watson and Cooks and three with Watson and Fuller. And that sort of allows you to build this roster block that bets on the different ways that this could play out and and potentially isolate that, you know, Watson, Fuller, boom game with Cooks disappointing. Isolate that on a roster without putting yourself in a position where you're just trying to guess everywhere. Um, so that's one way to play that if you're multi-entering. But going back to like the, the, the idea behind the correlations, on a week where, and I guess tying this up, on a week where you can look at the slate and it's like, boy, there's a lot of guys who could go for 40 this week. It's, it's important to get as many of those 40-point scores as possible. And because of that, the just betting on an individual offense idea becomes slightly less valuable. On the flip side, basically exactly what, what you were getting at um, in the question, on the flip side, on the weeks where you look around and you're like, boy, I don't know who's going to score 40 points this week, just trying to get the offense that could blow up, the offense that could put up 35 to 41 points, the offense that could have a huge game. I think that's one of the things that people miss too with the correlations is, you know, Three guys on an offense, they might all do well, but they're not winning you a tournament unless that offense is either A, just incredibly concentrated and they score four touchdowns, or B, this offense scores five or six touchdowns. That's really what you're looking for is those offenses that blow up for a big game. And so on these weeks when you look around and you say, yeah, there's really not any individual players that I feel have a great shot at 35 points, 40 points, whatever it is, you can help yourself out quite a bit as far as like long-term plus EV thinking. You can help yourself out quite a bit by trying to find the offense that has a shot at putting up a bigger score than most people will be expecting. And that the it would have been like betting on the Titans offense last week um, where you look at Titans Colts over under a 51, but everyone like, all anyone called it was like a potentially sneaky shootout spot, even after the fact. But the over-under was there. It was 51. It was like the third highest over-under on the slate. It was just harder to see where those points were going to come from. But if you say, well, screw it. I don't know where these points are going to come from, but there's nothing to love on this slate, so let me bet on this offense. Then you end up getting the big scores that come from that offense. And so again, the, the tighter the week is in terms of like being able to find elite scores from individual players, the more valuable those correlations can become because if you hit on that offense that puts up five or six touchdowns, you are now moving past the field, not just with one spot, but with probably three spots. Um, And then on the weeks when, you know, five or six guys might go for 40 points, the most important thing is to get those as many of those 30 to 40 point games as possible. And so correlation is often going to be your best path 
to that, but there are some weeks when that's not going to be your best path to that. And you maybe want to marry yourself to that a little bit less in order to uh, expose yourself to some other ways to build. So hopefully that uh, explains it well. Hopefully that helps you out there. All right, next question is a decently long one. It's from Wilbur, big Wilbur style. Uh, He said, I've been an OWS member since the beginning, following you from RG. Love the work you put in and always appreciated it. I've been playing the $2.20 max each week this year. I've struggled to profit even a little most weeks. I think I've profited two to three of the 12 to 13 weeks. And even those profits, I don't think we're even doubling my money back. I'm worrying if I'm just building bad lineups or if there is some other hole in my game. Uh, I've attempted to use the lab's opto a few of the past weeks, but this week went back to hand building when the opto wasn't doing what I wanted it to. I usually start with laying out my 20 lineups with the QBs I want and then the pass catchers I want paired with them and then the bring back. I then go in and fill in each lineup the best I can, being aware of if it's a higher owned stack, I need to go a little lower owned in these fill-in pieces, and I try to correlate them as best I can. Also being conscious of how much of a particular player I want. So a couple things here, and and then Wilbur sent in some of his lineups, which I'll I'll get to in a moment. A couple things here. If you're playing 20 max, and you're playing a $2 20 max, where you, uh, I don't actually know what size that contest is, but let's say you have to beat 30,000, 40,000 entries. They want a payout at the top that's attractive because that gets people to play. So like, for example, the slant is a $9 entry. It's 50,000 up top. The wildcat is a 333 entry with five, with like a 5,000 entry field. And it's 200,000 or 300,000 up top, depending on the week. Right? They want this really attractive prize up top, but that means in order to get that attractive prize up top, the other prizes are necessarily going to be less attractive. If you're not getting first place in tournaments like that, or not getting top five or top 10 in tournaments like that, it's really difficult to be profitable over the small sample size of 13, 12, or 13 slates. It's really hard, even with 20 lineups, right? Like, again, I don't know what, what, how many you have to beat in that contest. But let's say that there are 50,000 lineups. Well, if you're putting in 20 lineups, that gives you a 1 in 2,500 shot at finishing first place. So at a 17-week season, that means once every 147 years, once every 147 years, you would finish first place. Most of the money is at first place. So it's hard to play these tournaments. Now, if you're playing, if you're playing single entry, or three max, what we have referred to consistently over the years as bankroll building tournaments. If you're playing those, then you're expecting to cash five out of 17 weeks at least. And I I paused there because 
we're still dealing with small sample sizes. So, you know, take it over three seasons, right? Like over 51 slates. Let's say that you should be cashing at least 15 of those slates, at least 30% of the time. And that might be you cash three times one season and eight times another and four times another. But like over time, you should be able to cash like 30% of your lineups. And if you're in those bankroll building tournaments where the payout structures are, are less extreme and you're obviously not, not finishing just barely in the money all 15 times, all 18 times, however often you're able to cash, you're getting some of these in the top 5%. You're getting some of these into the top 3%. And unlike those super large field tournaments where top 5% might be 3x your money, top 5% in one of these might be 5x your money. So over time, with these bankroll building contests, you're going to be profitable over the long run, even as you're waiting for that first place finish. Also, that first place finish doesn't come around once every 147 seasons. It might come around once every eight seasons, once every 15 seasons, whatever the case is. And then obviously we're expecting that we're going to beat those odds. And so if, if they're saying once every 147 years, maybe you win it once every 100 years. But that's still waiting 100 years in, in the scenario of these large field tournaments. And so you have to understand kind of what you're working with and judge your play. And, and you probably know this will burn probably do this because you've been on the site long enough, but this is kind of just speaking to everybody. Just the reminder to judge your play if you're multi-entering based on what percentages of your rosters are finishing and what percentile of the field. So you telling me that you've only had, you know, two or three profitable weekends out of 12 or 13 doesn't actually tell me that much about how successful your play has been this year. Because that could be the case and you could still be putting I, – I had a week this year in the Wildcat where I cashed 9 out of 19 rosters and finished down like 1% of my buy-ins on the weekend. And that was the only contest I was playing. And it was like uh, whatever that is, like 45% of my rosters – cashed. 45% of my rosters finished in the top 20%. I think like 15% of my rosters finished in the top 10%. And I lost a tiny bit of money that weekend. It was an unprofitable weekend, but it was an extremely strong weekend of play. And so if you're putting, if you're putting 25% or 30% of your rosters into the money over time, and the money is the top 20%, sometimes the top 18, sometimes the top 22, depending on kind of the contest, but um, basically top 20%. If you're putting 25, 30% of your rosters in the money over time, you're still probably unprofitable in a tournament like that, but you're, you're basically proving consistently that you are going to beat the odds over time, that you would win it more frequently than once every 147 years, that you would you know, basically outperform the numbers that are in place for the field. If you're putting 12%, 15% of your rosters in the top 10% over time, you're playing really well. So that's the main thing I would say there as far as like assessing it. The next thing I would say is your process is really sound starting out with the quarterbacks that you like 
and then the pass catchers you want to pair them with, and then the bring backs, and then the understanding of like whether it's a high owned stack and what you need to do from there. It, it, like 80 to 85% of what you're doing is on point. And you can be profitable over time sticking at that 80 to 85%. Uh, the one thing I would say that could push things up another notch, you know, get you up to like 95%, 100% play is just giving yourself a little more room for creativity and flexibility, making a, a just a little bit less scientific. Not every quarterback should have two guys stacked with him. Not every quarterback wide receiver stack should have a bring back on the other side. Now, I know that you know that, but just you know, hammering that in there. Not every roster should necessarily start with a quarterback. Not every week should start with the passing attacks that you like. So there are some weeks where there might, when I was mini multi-entering, there are some weeks where it's like, okay, this quarterback and this wide receiver is who I like. And I'm going to have them on 11 out of 19 builds. And then I'll mix and match a few things from there. Other weeks, it might be like, okay, this running back and this, I don't know, let's say defense, right? Like I'm putting them on... 14 out of 19 builds, and I don't have any quarterback stacks that I really love as much, but I have three or four that I really like. And so I'll have four of this quarterback and four of this quarterback and four of this quarterback, and then you know fill out those last seven rosters from there. Like every week for me kind of starts in a different point depending on what the slate offers. So you want to have that flexibility so that some weeks you're able to say, okay, I'm going to have 12 of this quarterback. In other weeks, you're going to say, all right, there's no quarterback that I'm going to have on more than four or five of my rosters. And so that type of flexibility is important. And when I look at the the rosters that you sent in, they're excellent rosters. They're So like Cam Newton, Jacoby Myers, this is week 12, Cam Newton, Jacoby Myers, Andy Isabella. That's a great starting point. Uh, you got Travis Kelsey and Antonio Brown in the Chiefs Bucks game. You're basically saying, okay, Travis Kelsey does does well. The Bucks are having to pass. Antonio Brown does well in response. Uh, Dalvin Cook anchoring at running back, but then instead of just going Dalvin Cook, which a lot of people are going to have, you say, hey, let me also bring that back with Robbie Anderson so that I have that one correlated as well. Uh, the next roster you have. Cam and Isabella and Jacoby again, but you have no Dalvin Cook. Because you have no Dalvin Cook, you have Justin Jefferson basically saying, hey, if if Dalvin disappoints, then I'm expecting Jefferson to do well. Adam Thielen's out. You still bring that back with a piece from the Panthers with DJ Moore. The next roster is Cam and Jacoby again, but instead of Isabella, you bring it back with Christian Kirk. Uh, you go back over to Dalvin Cook, and this time you bring Curtis Samuel back as the wide receiver on the other side. Um, you've swapped off of uh, Travis Kelsey in this one and gone down to Jordan Reed when you bring it up to Tyreek Hill uh, to account for what you're expecting to happen in that Chiefs and Bucks game. Like all of this is just really sharp, like 85th percentile types of builds. And I promise you, I can promise you that 85th percentile types of builds are going to make 
money over time. So the way that you're building these rosters is as if it's as if we said, hey, can somebody send in an example of how we should be building rosters uh, and so that we can talk about them on the show? And you sent in these rosters and we were like, oh yeah, this is a perfect example of everything that we talk about. You take risks on these rosters. Um, you're willing to do things that other people aren't doing. You're on a lot of sharp plays. But it, it's. I think that there is an element, the, the Cubs fan, like building by hand element, right? Of like just some, some just pure creativity, some less scientific thinking. And even if it's like, if you're going to build 20 rosters, even if it's like, all right, I'm going to take four or five each week, kind of like the way when I build 19, I, most weeks I like to try to leave myself two or three rosters where I'm going to bet on a passing attack that I might not even really love but that's like this passing attack is going to be 1% owned and can hit for a big game. Like the Sam, like Sam Darnold has what two or three games in his career of 30 plus points. And everyone's like, well, he never gets good scores. What they, what they see is that when he disappoints, he disappoints hard. He's not keeping you in the running when he disappoints, but what people overlook is, Hey, like, 10% of Sam Darnold's career games, he's gone for 30 points and he's always 1% owned. So I like to try to leave a couple rosters for those like Drew Locke bets or the Sam Darnold bets, the guys who are cheap and can get you the sort of score that everybody else is paying up for and are going to be low owned and create that tangible edge. And so in the same way that I, I like to leave a few rosters for to force myself into that type of build. You could leave a few rosters to just build creatively and and not necessarily think quite as much about exactly how all the pieces fit perfectly together, but to also just say, hey, what like let me get crazy here and and what's something that could happen, right? Like still tell a story, but tell a story. You know, like the, I think that the biggest thing that the rosters that just like correlate, 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 the, the biggest thing that those rosters are missing, right? Where it's like, hey, I'm going to have three, two, two, kind of no matter what, is this is all about storytelling. The reason why correlation works is because if the particular story that you're telling with that correlation proves to be true this week, you're going to make a lot of money. But not every correlation tells a clear story. So there are spots where, you know, like a lot of people last week wanted to take, because they were taking Chiefs, they wanted to take Chris Godwin or they wanted to take Antonio Brown on the other side. But we know that the Bucks spread the ball around. So the way that I was looking at that one last week was if I'm going to take Chiefs, I either want to take no bucks or I want to take the Buccaneers player that people just won't be on, which last week was Rob Gronkowski. And so I actually would have been a beautiful build. I messed around last Friday night. Again, it was a single entry for me last week. I messed around last Friday night with a build that was Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, Rob Gronkowski. 
the leverage is there. The correlation is there. Everybody's going to be on A, everybody's going to be on pay up for tight end on that week. It was over 50% of rosters had Waller or Kelsey. B, a lot of people had Kelsey, 25 to 30% owned on Kelsey. And so if people have pay up for tight end, if people have Kelsey, they don't have Gronk. If Hill is hitting for a tournament winning score, Kelsey is less likely to be hitting for a tournament winning score. So you hurt those Kelsey rosters and then hope that you scoop up the Gronk points on the other side, the points that nobody's going to have from that side of the game. That's a harder one to pull the trigger on if you're sitting in front of a spreadsheet and kind of placing things in because you you kind of can get into that mindset of trying to optimize everything, mathematically optimize everything. But once the games start, chaos ensues and math kind of goes out of the window and just kind of sometimes being able to say, hey, what's like a wild story that I want to tell in this game? And then ask yourself how realistic that story is and then roll with it. And I think that that's kind of what the the just like the straight correlation builds miss and what kind of ties back into what we're talking about at the top of this week's pod is the people who try to build by hand, most people who try to build by hand are going to do a worse job than an optimizer will do. But the people who kind of understand what they can get right that an optimizer can't, those are the people who can build by hand and actually gain an extra edge. So I would say, Wilbur, that your builds right now, these builds that we went through, they are those 85% 85 percentile builds. They are those really sharp optimizer type builds. And you are going to make money over time with builds like this. The one thing I would add to it is just saying, hey, let me also give myself, let me recognize that the point of correlations is the story being told. And so if I can tell a slightly more extreme story and that story ends up happening on this week, I'm moving past everybody. And so again, looking for those ones where you just where you, it would be hard to sit in front of a spreadsheet and actually lock it in. You know, Gronk on that roster is not the optimal way to go, but Gronk on that roster might be the way to win the tournament that week if that's the way that the story of that game plays out. And um, yeah, just giving yourself that freedom to find a few extra little things that that are creative that other people aren't going to be on because sometimes that's a separator. Sometimes that's the difference between, you know, like looking at the, these rosters of yours and it's Calvin Ridley and it's Kareem Hunt and it's Austin Eckler and it's Dalvin Cook and it's Antonio Brown and it's Gabriel Davis and it's Curtis Samuel and it's Naheem Hyde, and it's Brian Hill and it's Devontae Parker and it's Jamison Crowder and they're all really strong plays, but they're all, and, and none of them are like, almost all of these are not highly owned, but they're all 5% or higher owned. And sometimes in these large field tournaments, you just have to find that 1% or 2% guy who's not actually as crazy of a play as everybody thinks, the Gronk type play, that if it misses, sure, there goes that roster. But if it hits, 
It's a guy who's hitting that is in a game that everybody loves. Everybody's taking players from this game. Nobody's taking this one guy. And he can very clearly hit. Like That's the type of thing that we just have to be willing to find those pieces. And that can be that, that hardest final step. So I wouldn't change anything that you're doing. Again, you're, you're making profitable rosters. But the one way to sort of level up is to take a few of those rosters each week and just say, you know what, let me get a little bit crazy and tell a story that isn't going to be told just by the math, but that's a very realistic story and that I know exactly, I know exactly what story I'm telling. I know what I need to go write in this game for this story to be profitable for me. And, and let me just put it in there and hope that this story is profitable uh, on the small sample size of this week. Uh, last question comes from Rob F. And he asked, uh, talking about Lex's, uh, Moralia's matchups in the NFL edge, he said the deeper question may or may not have been, uh, how does Lex's info fit within the context of a given slate? That is what I struggled with in reading each and every one and now just use it on certain games where I have some interest and get pertinent info for my roster constructs. Uh, maybe a discussion about contextualizing the info within a given slate is worth a deeper dive. Thanks for all that you and your guys do. Rob F. So the, the, the NFL edge two seasons ago, in fact, let's go through a, a very brief history. I've mentioned this before, but in 2015, I wrote up an entire NFL edge on a flight back from Asia, like a 20-hour flight from the United Arab Emirates to the U.S. I guess that's not really Asia, but it, we were in Asia. It was a, we had a layover in UAE and then like an 18 or 20-hour flight. And I wrote the entire NFL edge without working internet. Back then, the NFL edge was like 300 to 500 words per game. It was heavily based around coaching tendencies and expected game flow. And I would look up some stats as I wrote it, but the stats were not the focus of the article. As we got into 2016 and 2017, the NFL edge started becoming sort of a bigger part of RG Premium, a bigger part of my personal brand. I wanted to keep making it better and better, and so I kept expanding and expanding it. By 2017, uh, or actually, let's fast forward to 2018. By 2018, we launched one-week season, and by that point, the NFL edge had basically become like a first cousin of Silva's matchups column. It broke down a lot of the same stats in a lot of the same ways. It looked at a lot of similar things. Obviously had more of a DFS slant than the matchups column, which has always been more season-long focused. But I was basically like, my thought was as it, as it became a more and more popular piece and became more and more the central thing that people were paying for in RG Premium. Um, you know, when I, took, when I took over RG Premium, I guess I, I probably can't uh, publicly say concrete numbers, but when I took over RG Premium, our subscribers for football were less than half of what they were two years later when I left. And the biggest bump in subscribers would come every year in week one when we'd make the NFL Edge free 
And then week two, take it off the table and, and it was premium only. And we'd get all these signups for premium. And so it, it became something where it was like, okay, this is something that people are paying to read and they're coming specifically for this. So I need to make it as good as I can make it. And kind of looking around what, like what else like this was really popular while Silva's matchups column. And so I kind of just inadvertently started making it more and more like that article to a point where 2018, the first year of the site, it was it actually was even less focused on DFS and just so heavily focused on matchups and not, not heavily focused on uh, game environment, far less heavily focused on coaching tendencies than it had been before and than it is now. And I had a conversation in the summer of 2019, a couple conversations, one with Todd from PA and one with Cubs fan, where they were just kind of, you know, I, I had tried to define for myself what it was about my content that people really liked. And both Todd and Cubs fan, who had been, you know, readers of my stuff before they were people I knew. And both of them basically said, like, what, what sets you apart to me, what sets you apart to me as a reader is the way that you see games, right? Like they both said, anybody can do a bunch of research, which isn't actually true. Not anybody can, but um, a lot of, like a lot more people can do a lot of research and lay it out and do a good job doing that. But there's like a unique element of how you see the game and how you're able to lay that out. I think that's one of the really cool things about bringing Hilo on is that he's so similar to me in the way that he sees the games. So we started shifting away in 2019 away from the heavy statistical based matchup based elements. What happens there is even though what we're doing with the NFL edge now is much more valuable for making DFS roster decisions because people had been used to seeing all those stats, we would get emails from people saying, you know, like, hey, still really love the NFL edge, but it seems like there are fewer stats than there used to be. Um, and, you know, we'd get, I think we probably got 15 of those emails last year. This year we've gotten maybe two or three or four. But that was intentional, right? Like we were trying to say, look, the most value we provide is through like an actual understanding of this game environment. Let's focus on that because that's what we really need for DFS. That's what kind of Hilo and I are able to do that you can't necessarily get other places. But there is still a ton of value in having those stats in hand and kind of those matchup stats in hand, macro and micro matchup stats. So like game environments, matchup stats, and individual player matchup stats. And so this year, we were fortunate enough, you know, that Lex was doing what he was doing in Collective last year, was able to catch our eye and bring him on this year to do that side by side with the NFL Edge. And so the beauty there is that the people who process information through statistics still get Lex's like matchup bullet point statistics. That's just a, a perfect complement to the NFL edge. So two years ago, all of those matchup type stats would have been directly in the NFL edge, but we would have had a lot less about the game environment 
types of elements. Now we've sort of separated the two. We've been able to expand the game environment elements and keep the matchup statistics in there. All that to say, I think that there are readers for whom the matchup statistics are going to be irrelevant. I think that there are readers, a smaller number, but there are certainly readers who would actually probably be better off just reading the matchup bullet points and not reading the NFL Edge write-up. There are subscribers who would do better not reading the NFL Edge write-up at all or the matchups column and just using the GPP ceiling tool to have a strong baseline of an understanding of, of what projections say, which again, a lot of the NFL Edge is about us building our own projections in our heads for the slate and finding those spots where, we, where we're going to be able to better predict what will happen than a projection system will be able to. But there are plenty of players who would do better just looking at the projections and, and then thinking through their strategy from there. So I don't think that there's a prescription or a context that Lex's matchup bullet points categorically fit into. Because for me, I have found that my understanding of a slate is enhanced by reading the NFL Edge the way that I've started reading it. So I read the, uh, obviously I write the NFL Edge, um, but as I've said, it's kind of a crazy like research stretch and I forget a lot of what I wrote. And so I go back, I read the matchups bullet points, then I read the NFL Edge game write-up, then I read Collective. And I try to take all that information and kind of funnel it through like 85% of my decisions are going to be based on what I think and what I know. And then I'm able to find those little nuggets here and there. Maybe maybe 90%, 95% is based off of what I think and what I know. But I'm able to find these little nuggets here and there that's like, oh, here's something I hadn't thought about. Let me incorporate that into my thinking as well. But I think that if you're reading the, the matchups, and uh, so that, that has worked really well for me. Todd has mentioned that uh, that's how he reads the NFL Edge now. And I think that that's the best way to, to read it. The context-wise, or I should say the best way for most people to read it. Context-wise, the context of the, the matchup bullet points is kind of like, hey, here are compliments to the game flow elements. Here are some of the matchup-based elements to also keep in mind, supporting evidence, um, additional things to think about, etc. But I think that if you're, like I said, every reader is going to be different. So I think if you're going through and saying like, all right, I'm not getting as much out of these matchup notes as some others say that they're getting, recognize that, you know, the, the, the evolution of the NFL edge is the reason why the matchup notes exist. If we hadn't gone through that period of me turning the NFL edge into more of a matchups column, we wouldn't even have the matchup bullet points. It never they never would have been introduced just because we would have always been focused more on coaching tendencies and game environment and that never would have changed and so the NFL edge would still just be that. In other words, it's certainly viable to ignore the matchup bullet points if you feel like they're not filtering into your brain in a way that's that's profiting you or improving your play. And to just focus on the NFL Edge write-ups. But again, there are other people who are going to read the matchup stuff and, and it just kind of adds a few little nuggets that they can bring with them or that supports things 
more deeply or help solidify their thoughts or whatever the case might be. So yeah, I think that there's no prescribed way to process all this information. It's understanding what's working for you, what you can do to maximize your profitability in DFS, um, and then sticking with that. But yeah, um, do want to give a shout out to Lex for the unbelievable work on the, the matchup stuff I mentioned that really not everybody can do that. And his mind works in a very unique and highly capable way for like processing information and research really well and laying it out in an easy to understand manner. So um, yeah, if you haven't been reading uh, the matchup bullet points, I would recommend that you do. But if you have been reading them and find that like they're not providing any boost to you, then certainly you can cut cut them out. Same thing if you were reading the NFL Edge and finding that it weren't providing any boost for you, you could cut that out. You have to find like your rhythm and how to how you interact with OWS. It's kind of why we have so many different ways to interact with the site, from the game notes to the UF Collective to um, the GPP ceiling tool to the write-ups to the matchup bullet points, right? Like we want, and every year we want to keep adding new things so that you know, we might be able to take 20 different OWS users and each of them uses the site in kind of a different way and builds their process around the site in a different way. But, um, but yeah, those tools are there on hand for whatever makes the most sense for you. With that, uh, I'm going to get out of here. My wife is coming back home tomorrow. So I got some, some house cleaning to do. And then uh, be recording something with uh, Scott Barrett this this evening for this slate, and then probably not working on rosters as we head into this ugly weekend. So, um, with that, I'm going to get out of here. I will see you on the site. I will whenever you're listening to this, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend. Whenever you're listening to this, and if you're listening to this in the present, if you're listening to this in week 13 or week 14 of the 2020 season, I will see you in week 14 on another edition of Processing the Edge with Josh Morano. We will walk through the NFL Edge next week and let him kind of guide game by game and ask questions about the slate. So I'll see you there. Thanks for hanging out. Talk soon.